0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation, taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Erin Good, the author of American Exception, here to talk us to us about American exceptionalism. Uh, welcome, Erin, to our show. Um, I was reading your book, and it's called American Exception, and... I was just um, a little overwhelmed. In the back of your book, it says that you worked for the 2008 Obama campaign. So how did you go from being like an Obama boy to this, writing this book?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, well, it's a fair question. And I kind of wonder about that myself. But I think in a way, it's it's instructive that that happens to me because it helps you to understand denial really because i should have known enough to see that obama was likely not going to be this deliverer of change but uh i I kind of convinced myself that he was something other than what he was and so for me it was pretty fascinating to ponder that for a while you know among other things but really what happened was I had more of a understanding of U.S. foreign policy and other things than, than, all, than the people that I was working with in the Obama campaign who are very nice and smart people. But like they're very, uh, you know, uh, just generally, generally demo- dis- centrist Democrats or not even centrist Democrats. A lot of them are if they're motivated enough to want to work in it a lot in that area, a lot of them are actually more on the left side of things than you would guess. Uh, and this would be kind of surprising to you. But, it, but it's but it's true. Um, but they're not that far to the left. But I knew more about foreign policy. I'd studied things like uh, the CIA in um, in Iran, and I read the book Overthrow by Stephen Kinzer and this other book that was a more academic version of that book by a professor named uh, Michael Sullivan, who I happened to run into. So I knew more about U.S. foreign policy, but I really thought that after eight years of George W. Bush... And the, the obviously criminal Iraq war and the torture and everything else that, that Obama would come in and that he would prosecute people for that. And, and it wasn't certain that he wasn't going to do that until after he was elected. Um, and supposedly they said that, I mean, there was a news story that came out where Obama basically feared a coup from the national security people, uh, in terms of prosecuting torture. So take that for what it's worth. But, uh, really when it comes to the Obama policies, Three things that he did, well, two of them very early and then the other one shortly after were the coup in Honduras. That made me think that, oh, God, it's the same thing. All, same thing again. It never changes. And the bailouts for the financial crisis, you know, after 08 and 09, which, by the way, were perfectly timed, like with a at the in the closing days of a presidency of George W. Bush. And they have that whole thing go down, which is fascinating, but also the war in Libya. So those things together. And I thought, oh, my God, this is uh, horrendous. I was hoping for change and it's the exact opposite. He's actually making sure that there's no change and I need to go back and look at politics. So I went back and I just started reading a lot of books on different subjects in politics. I saw Oliver Stone go on Bill Maher's show and he talked about the Kennedy assassination and uh, this book, JFK and the Unspeakable.
0: I I read JFK and the Unspeakable. Um, It's actually a very, it it was by a Catholic priest, but I forgot his name.
1: Uh, it's a catholic uh he he isn't an, an ordained priest his name's James Douglas but he was he does have a long history he's catholic and it's basically from the religious left and uh you know i think the kennedy assassination is very useful in terms of being a window into looking at how the american empire really works and how the limits of american democracy so that was really fascinating and it just set me on a path to want to study this and the criminality of the us administration is what struck me because Not only Bush's crimes were uh, of a piece with crimes that go on all the time. And even though I knew about a number of these things, I'd seen JFK in the movie theater, actually, when I was really young, the Oliver Stone's original movie. I didn't quite put it all together as the U.S. and the U.S. empire being essentially a massive criminal enterprise. It's just not presented to you that way. And so I thought, well, I need to present it that way. And I I need to work with scholars who who are interested in doing this. And I, I met a few and one in Florida State. Lance Dehaven Smith, and he encouraged me to apply to graduate school, so I did, and uh, I wrote a dissertation that I knew was going to make me very uh, difficult to uh, employ. <laughs> so, but I, but it needed to be done, and so that's that's how I ended up taking on this uh, project, and then eventually it becomes the book.
0: Excellent. Um, I was very flabbergasted by your book because, of course, we started this podcast to be decolonial history. As in history, that from the other side, the side that you don't hear about, and I have been very skeptical of political science degrees. No offense.
1: Yeah, well, for good reason.
0: Yeah, I, about two years ago, there was a lady who went viral on Twitter because she had a democracy scale. But if you count it, like it was really insane because the U.S. under slavery would be more democratic under her scale, and she didn't even. Try to deep like she didn't even put examples to like test her scale, and this is what I've seen. So early on in the book, you define some terms, and I was wondering if you can kind of uh, it's used a lot. A lot of people may not know what it is, so can you humor us and tell us what you mean by hegemony?
1: Okay, yeah, hegemony just means dominance over a particular realm. So it could it it it, it could mean you could say that evolutionary theory is hegemonic uh, in biology. You know, you could say something like that. Uh, you, but in, when you're talking about politics and international politics, you're talking about the power of an empire over its, over its empire. So it's, it's dominance. Dominance in the particular realm. So U.S. hegemony, when we talk about that, is the position that the U.S. has enjoyed over global capitalism since the end of World War II. The U.S. became the there wasn't really a hegemon of the global capitalist system. There was a British empire and then there were there was a French empire and so on and so forth. But there wasn't one hegemon of global capitalism. It's that role that the U.S. went for. They decided to go for it during World War Two and they achieved it. And they are still trying to hold on to it today as the they want to hold on to their position as the hegemon of the global capitalist system. And uh, other countries are. Um, able to act more independently now such that we seem to be moving towards the end of US hegemony and a multipolar world where there are several poles of power uh, and perhaps the two big ones are Eurasia and then you know the US.
0: I would concur so and okay you also talk a little bit about deep politics or the deep state and unfortunately that term's been a little confused by a lot of not job, for lack of a better word, just misusing the term. And so what what does that mean to have like a deep politics or a deep state?
1: Well, you're right that the term has become uh, sort of bastardized by uh, Trump types and others. But really, it's a word that it's it comes from left wing critiques of the democratic state uh, from people like Ola Tanander, who's at the Peace Research Institute at Oslo, and then Peter Del Scott on the U.S. side. And um, it really means, I mean, you can use the term in different ways, and I do use it in a couple different ways. It can mean, in, in the broadest sense, it means all of those institutions that collectively allow for top-down rule in a nominal democracy. So you have a democracy, but you have these other forces that allow for it to function basically as a dictatorship of some kind and that is the deep state the deepness comes from the fact that it is not wholly submerged or constitutional you know it doesn't come from power that's in the constitution it's power that's kind of above the constitution maybe prior to the constitution or whatever but it supersedes it so the other way to use the term is is perhaps more narrow and this is uh, maybe more of the where it can be appealing to people who are just full on conspiracists uh and that would be the topmost part of the clandestine state, so that part of the of the state that is the the most secretive and top down so those very elements that could that could mean the deep state and it comes from the idea of deep politics which are politics that are usually suppressed rather than acknowledged, you know, political practices and ideas and facts that are suppressed rather than acknowledged. And that comes from Peter Dell Scott. And he originally started writing about this stuff in the 1970s. He wrote about parapolitics, which is a Mm -hmm. a term that he invented that describes practices in politics where accountability is consciously diminished. And that really referred to things like CIA covert operations that the U.S. after World War II creates, these agencies with the ability, the supposed authority to execute, to do illegal things and to construct cover stories so that they can lie about ever having done them in the first place. And the, the, if this has effects on democracy because how can you evaluate the policies of the government when the government isn't even telling you what those are? And the government's going to the trouble to like actually make up fake stories so that you think the fake story is the truth, then how are you supposed to vote in a democratic way in an informed way you can't and this is uh this is a problem it was done supposedly to protect us from the existential threat of communism but as you look at it more that's more of a cover story itself because if you say it's oh it's we're fighting communism that's different than we are really uh thrusting capitalism into every corner of the world which is what the u.s did after world war ii they took over management of colonialism
0: We had Max Blumenthal on, and he wrote Management of Savagery, which is exactly that, Management of Colonialism. And often people don't understand by communism, we literally mean illiterate peasants who have nothing but their clothes, even sometimes they don't even have the clothes on their back. So I have two questions. I've wondered this. I've seen uh, Vladimir Putin wonder about this. Eva Morales has also wondered about this. But why... Regardless of what the president says when he's prior to being elected, it seems that all presidents kind of do the Obama thing where they eventually kind of follow the deep state. And Putin's joke is that they end up showing him in a a video of the JFK assassination from a new angle. But why is it that we don't see any change in foreign policy regardless of who's in office?
1: Well, because the foreign policy of the United States since the end of World War II was created by the pinnacle of power in the United States, uh, Wall Street, corporate power. And they are the most wealthy and most powerful forces in the world. And they have strategized ways of really consolidating themselves as a class so that you don't have any, there's really no one with a lot of money and power that is actively organizing against the general thrust of U.S. empire. So in the Spanish-American War, you actually had guys like Carnegie, who funded the Anti-Imperialist League. Okay? He was the main financial backer of it. So he was one part of the bourgeois in America, you know, the capitalist class, that was against the you know, extraterritorial imperialism that was pursued at that time in the spanish-american war and so on in the u.s system you have um really consolidated all of these forces so that there's no one out there who is really against u.s imperialism everybody that has a huge amount of money in america for whatever reason none of them are against this project that's a big part of it in a capitalist society the people the wealthy people own the the media they have enormous influence over electoral politics campaign finance. I mean, it's just overwhelming the power of wealth in a capitalist society. And so they they have hijacked the state and an empire running. You know, why did those countries run colonial empires for so long? They did it because there was wealth to be plundered in the in the global south. And the U.S., by making a transition after World War Two to neocolonialism, allowed these people in the in especially in corporate america but they really managed the you know capitalism for these other countries as well that's why europe is prosperous in part because the us protects all of its investments so it can go on exploiting the third world and this system is just it's oligarchy really and it just reproduces itself and with a democracy you can't even really get at the source of your troubles you can vote one party in or one party out but uh they're all represented by the same forces Two presidents, well, there's a, there's a few presidents in the U.S. that have tried to make minor changes to this. JFK is the most obvious, and he gave a speech in the summer of 1963 saying we need to end the Cold War. war doesn't make any sense under these circumstances where we could destroy each other so easily. We need to make the world safe for diversity. Uh, we need to understand that the Soviets lost more people than anybody ever in a war. Nobody suffered ever in a war like the Soviets in World War II. And we need to examine our attitudes about it. Yeah, he, he said a few anti-communist, you know, boilerplate things. But he was actually, it's amazing. It's an amazing speech to go back and listen to. And he's saying, he says explicitly, we do not seek to, we don't want a Pax Americana foisted on the world by American weapons of war. I mean, it's really remarkable. And he dies. The, he, so he gives that speech in the summer and he dies in the fall.
2: What kind of a peace do I mean? And what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana, enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace. The kind of peace that makes life on Earth worth living. The kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans. But peace for all men and women, not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary rational end of rational men. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war. And frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal.
1: And then a week after JFK's shot, RFK sends a messenger to the, the Russians, to Moscow, a family friend, to deliver a message saying that he's going to have to bide his time eventually resign from his position in the White House, run for office somewhere else, and then make a run for the presidency. And only then can the quest for peace resume uh, that, that his brother was pursuing. And, of course, RFK gets killed before he can make it to the White House. Uh, Richard Nixon try, wanted to do slightly different things. He wanted to have a little bit of protectionism uh, after the fall of the Bretton Woods system. And he also wanted to look at who shot Jack Kennedy. He tried to get information on that, which is comical when you think about it. And he worked towards detente, really, with the Soviets and the Chinese. Uh, All these things that upset the sinners in power. So even as bad as Nixon was, it really appears that he was removed by these same forces that removed Kennedy. Uh, Something similar happens to Jimmy Carter, his own. Like David Rockefeller basically put Jimmy Carter into office and then later throws his weight behind the forces trying to get rid of him, along with, you know, George H.W. Bush and other people. Uh, it's really an amazing thing to see this, that a lot of these presidents are not the ones really in charge. They're actually brushed around or knocked around by forces much more powerful than themselves. Uh, and you saw that here. That's And this explains why a policy never changes by and large in the in the US and US foreign policy and also how every president since Reagan has basically been Reagan. I mean every president in the US now is essentially about ninety percent compatible with Ronald Reagan. And and this is where the position we're in.
0: Yeah, I, I mean I have to concur. Um with Nixon, I see that. Um earlier this year when Biden said something about I can't control gas prices, I actually showed people a video of Nixon actually controlling gas prices. And I've noticed that every president after Nixon has been less progressive than Nixon, which is kind of sad, but that is the state we're in. So in your book, you talk about how uh, your book is named American Exception, and you talk about how the national security state operates in a permanent state of exception. And that really perked my ears up. So can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, the state of exception it come is a concept in political science that is it, it comes from or it's least most famous for its association with Carl Schmitt. You know, uh, Carl Schmitt was the
0: He's a
1: Nazi, right? <laughs> the Nazi. Yeah, he was the legal mind behind the Nazi regime. And what he said, it was pretty straightforward. He said, sovereign is he who decides on the exception, meaning that the real sovereign power, the ultimate power in a nation state is that. Party, which gets to decide when the law does not apply, when there is a state of emergency uh, such that you cannot expect the sovereign to conform to the rule of law. And so this is what the Nazis deem themselves to be in an emergency because of a communist revolution, you know, or potential uh, with the Reichstag fire, which they probably set. But we'll put that aside for a minute Uh, and that this was how the Nazis um, legitimated or authorized the, the regime that they had to go out and kill anyone that needed to be killed and to sort of suspend any sort of constitutional due process, yada yada, and this is how the u s has operated in this way, but different than the Nazi regime because it doesn 't acknowledge it or there 's no Fuhrer principle that that 's openly articulated, but in fact, it really is the policy of the United states they 've committed every crime uh, that you can imagine you know they they of course torture is like famous but really on the 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 most r- routine thing is the violation of sovereignty of other countries every government that the us overthrows or invades or bombs these are almost invariably violations of uh the un charter which the us has ratified and which the constitution says is the supreme law of the land um that's, that's what the supremacy clause says and the us totally ignores that they call this the rules based international order which is not the rule of law it's uh, ba- what that really means is the u.s uh, can do anything it wants and that that's those are the rules and you have to follow it and that's the world order that's what they talk about jfk i might i might mention in his peace speech said we should be uh, have an international peace in the rule of law so that's exactly what they don't say today
0: exactly and right now i'm in lugansk um that used to be i guess ukraine and now it's russia and I cannot go 10 feet without seeing a mass grave, thanks to all the arms that the U.S. gives to Ukraine and whatnot. So I understand the limits of the world's based order. But I guess since like I, I, as long as I can remember, there's I, I guess there's a the 9-11 terrorism. So the laws like kind of were suspended, like everything was you can do whatever you want kind of thing. And then it just kind of continued on and on and on. And it seems like there's impunity for everyone to do whatever they want. I mean, everyone in power, I guess. And a big component is the propaganda and how it is so intertwined with the national security state. Like when you go on MSNBC, you see like a 100 CIA agents there on CNN. You know what I mean? Is this by design? It's so like, how did it come to be this way?
1: Well, it was, there was always a lot of propaganda in the United States. It was in its modern form, you know, it it was probably invented by the United States, people like Edward Bernays and so on. Um, And they were, you know, they put that into play in World War I, the the four minute men that would run around and give four minute speeches talking about how great World War I was and the demonization of the Germans and so on. They sort of start going in that route sort of systematically throughout the 20th century. And the propaganda in the US is all encompassing and it's like a a fish who doesn't really even know like what water is because like, you know, you've been in water your whole life. Americans don't grasp how much propaganda they're subjected to. And it's, it can be, uh, um, disorienting to think about in the, in the US, the structure of the media is such that. Uh, you know, there have been scandals of like the CIA infiltrating newsrooms and so on or putting people in positions.
0: I mean, now it's not even infiltrating. You have former CIA analyst who's just there on MSNBC talking.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it's true. And they th- I think that they still do have reporters who pose as reporters who work as CIA officer or who are CIA agents might even be officers in some capacity. Who knows? But as big an issue as anything is that You have to think about what the CIA is and you have to understand it. So it's not the Illuminati and it's not like the CIA is itself this entity that is the end all be all of the activities of the U S empire. The CIA was created to be the secret police of the American oligarchy. So it's created by people like the Rockefellers council on foreign relations, the same people like Alan Dulles, who was running that. This is what the CIA does. And so the corporate media is owned by the same oligarchy that the CIA works for. And so it's really like any person who is trying to advance in the, these corporations and these corporate hierarchies is going to act basically like he would if he were a CIA asset of sorts, because you want to do work that is pleasing to your, who are the people who are ultimately your bosses, the oligarchy, and that's who owns the CIA anyway. So it's really a very nefarious thing. Where yeah, of course they manipulate things. The national security state gets involved in Hollywood and the and the media and so and corporate media you know, journalism and so on. But it's even beyond that. They are uh, they have the same kind of agenda in general. So we're really uh, structurally really screwed in the United States in terms of having a way to support institutions and organizations that don't serve the oligarchy because the oligarchy is an oligarchy of money and they have all the money they're the ones who can hire people they're the ones who can make donations to you know alternative media uh they're the ones who pay to advertise on corporate media so it's we're really uh struck under capitalism especially under imperial capitalism where there's so much money held by the oligarchs here we are just structurally at such a huge disadvantage, uh, and as such, the truth does not carry the day in public discourse very often in the United States.
0: Okay, so I have two comments. Um, I think the truth does carry the day if you look at it from what I call the East India Company point of view. So for example, often you'll see, um, uh, you mentioned Samantha Power in your book, and i I will mention this because it is the most glaring example of this. But um, often the way the U.S. accuses other leaders of being authoritarian is not letting us win. And that makes sense if you uh, have somebody like what the East India Company did, with is gunboat diplomacy, when you put like when you install a head like, like a puppet head. And when he doesn't let you win, yeah, he's cheating because you guys had an agreement. So that's. I guess the slight pushback is that they do tell you the truth, but they're from their demented perspective that none of us share. (laughs) And then the second thing is that in your book, you talk about something called the power elite. Can you expound on that? Because it sounds like a very profound concept to me. Uh, There is a structure of power where just a few like get together to decide. And your examples are very cogent. So after you define this, we'll talk about some of the examples.
1: Okay, yeah, that that the phrase comes from C. Wright Mills and his famous 1956 book, The Power Elite. Uh, he was a sociologist at Columbia University, and he wrote the book because after World War II, he read this book by Franz Newman, Behemoth, which explained the rise of the Nazi state. You know how you have this Nazi regime come out of a very advanced country with high literacy and uh high levels of you know education, development, industrialization and so on. How could you get this horribly reactionary regime? And he explained it with uh you know the cartel system and how it gave so much power to certain actors. Yeah. And uh then how to in order to save uh capitalism and reorganize capitalism, they came up with this fascist, you know, uh behemoth. And it made C. Wright Mills say, well, let's look at how these things overlap with the American Position, And he just he came to the conclusion that democracy in the United States was really a mirage and that power resided in organizations that were the top organizations in the government, in the military and in corporate America, Wall Street. And so he saw these people as being increasingly interchangeable, that the the, especially the permanent, the privately incorporated permanent war economy, you know, the creation Mm -hmm. of the, the military industrial complex had really created a convergence of interests in politics, corporate America, and the military, such that permanent war was kind of the answer to every problem for the U.S. And it had put so much power in the hands of American elites that was it was unique in the history of the U.S. Power was dispersed in kind of different ways at different points in the U.S. history. And he goes through this, traces it over several eras. But the post-war era that he was writing in, he saw this horrifying concentration of power and decisions were mostly made. Uh, the most important decisions were often made in secret, and you don't really even know by who and mm-hmm. that this was a was a huge problem. and it was a way to to argue about uh, or or to put forth a vision of of understanding historical processes and and power structures where you don't have it's not that everything is conspiracy and it's not that everything is just drift or the structure doing all the work and no human agency at all. it's that. Something in between. It's a it's a place where you have to understand the power structure and how it gives agency to different parties, to certain parties. The structure is what determines the agency that people have. It's never just a matter of structure or agency. If you want to understand history, and he really elaborated that really well. And see, as a Seirat Mills is just brilliant in the power elite holds up extremely well today. Uh, and it's a book that's about 80 years old or so. So it, that that says a lot.
0: Okay. So then afterwards, he defines another concept called higher immorality. What is that?
1: Well, he he says that the higher immorality, he talks about this in a number of ways, and he doesn't exactly give a definition as far as like saying here is the definition so clearly. But it's really the divorce of mind from power in the United States. It's the way that like the, the logic of the corporation of like or the logic of the military, you know, it's either profit or and or victory, this like single-minded focus on expediency to further y- your interests, that this is uh the higher immorality in the United States. It was the higher immorality of, of capitalism, you can say, and then it becomes the higher immorality of the US empire. And that you had really divorced any sort of wisdom or morality from power in the United States, and that this was a frightening prospect. So it, it, it's it's really, to, to my mind, because I've, I've thought about this a bit since writing this and, and thinking about Mills, it really is like the dark side of civilization is, is a big part of capitalism in that all of civilization, human civilization, is built on in part on exploitation. Okay. You don't really have, unless you have a base to exploit, you can't of like agricultural workers in the early stages, you don't have the surplus to allow for specialization and a division of labor. And those are all, those are the things that give rise to the better parts of civilization, you know, art, literature, everything, technology, Uh, All these improvements are built upon exploitation. Okay, this is the conundrum or the main, a a central contradiction of human civilization. That everything that is great about human civilization, that we think that we'd have a hard time living without, is has come from exploitation and hierarchies that are not really fair. And this, but this higher immorality is enshrined really at the top of the uh, U.S. political system and the U.S. political economy through by making capitalism the end all be all uh you really allow the greediest most power hungry people to uh have sway in your, and rule your society uh and you celebrate it and this this is scary
0: well yes i'm I read, i've read enough state department leaks to this podcast to be very um disturbed by this like there's like two incident like there's i will name three incidents that i've read um that really disturbed me the first one is this 1979 leak where the U.S. basically admits that the Soviets are doing the God's work in Afghanistan. They said, let, let me get this out because it's so psychotic. Um, Hold on. Given Afghanistan's poverty and backwardness, this revolutionary regime's goal would probably in themselves deserve genuine support from most quarters interested in bettering the lot of the Afghan people. But later on, uh, so then they also mention how the regime's principal reforms, reducing illiteracy, land reform, eliminating um, bright price, banning usury is like some of the things they've done. And then they say um, the fall of a radical leftist Soviet backed regime would well serve US interests by demonstrating primarily to the third world that the Marxist Leninist views of the inevitable course of history is not the right one. Um, and then they also say unbalanced, however, our larger interests, especially given the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan's extremely close ties to Moscow, would probably be best served by the demise of this regime, despite whatever setbacks this might mean for the future, social and economic reforms within Afghanistan. That was 1979.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's um, and that was 79. You had Carter in there and the U.S. diplomatic corps was more reasonable than uh, they had been for quite some time, really. I mean, Carter had made little motions towards human rights and so on. But around that time period, he started to take a harder line. Um, I think he tried to appease right wing forces, especially more so in the later part of his term. He wanted to be reelected. And the funny thing is, it doesn't matter. Anyway, he still ends up losing, but yeah, they were they began to arm the uh Mujahideen and it was really a part of Brzezinski's strategy. He was writing about this stuff going back a uh, years earlier and that's, you know, they they started funding uh people like Gulbuddin Hekmatyar in I think in the earlier 70s like actually years before through the Muslim Brotherhood um that which was, you know, created by the the British Empire the Muslim Brotherhood was. And uh, the U.S. was then the U.S. kind of takes over support of these guys in the 50s, people like um, Saeed Ramadan, you know, who's the main spokesman for the Muslim Brotherhood. So the U.S. always backed these people and Brzezinski himself under Carter before he destabilizes Afghanistan by, uh, you know, putting giving CIA funding to insurgents. They were already supporting these guys years earlier. This was his arc of crisis strategy. And uh, they really tried to take advantage of this starting in the in the 70s and really i mean up through the present day if you look at what the you know global jihadi incorporated has been been doing it's like pretty much it's not very difficult to see that it's more of a sock puppet of the of the u.s empire so it's a really grim business want to learn more about that grim business
2: check out our Substack and wow your friends and co-workers at holiday
1: parties with details of atrocities and the propaganda machine covering up and normalizing the domination doled out by the U.S. Empire between sips of eggnog. Also, visit us on YouTube and Twitch for Late Nights with Lennon. Get commentary and trolling from 100 years ago
2: by the absolute master of the form and see how little has changed. It is what is to be done.
0: And then the second one that really shows you, like, their demented minds, Cable against Evo Morales, Basically, they try to bribe Evo Morales and saying like they tried to intimidate him and say that you have to put their puppet in charge of the oil and gas in Bolivia. But then he decides not to. And so ultimately, like they basically they, you realize that their main problem with Evo Morales is not corruption, but that he's uncorruptible. And it's actually pretty comical because this like white guy is talking about how Bolivian democracy is under threat by the president of Bolivia who was elected overwhelmingly because he's registering rural voters and giving them ID cards. Like it's very anti-poor people. It's very elitist. Overall view.
1: Yeah, of course they, they do that all the time though. This is, this is the, when they say democracy in these kind of dispatches, they really mean a friendly business environment for the United States. They, that that's, that they mean free. It's like the way you used to say free enterprise instead of mm-hmm. capital, like they, instead of capitalism, it's that kind of a euphemism, except this way it's even more nefarious than that. At least with free enterprise, you can kind of make the leap to like the pretty, pretty easy jump to saying, oh, yeah, they mean capitalism. If you, they say democracy, but they really mean free enterprise. They really mean capitalism. Then it's even worse. So this is what they do. And the, the, the U.S. goes after what Morales did, does in Libya. I mean, it's not that complicated. If you are in the global south, you want to try to. Nationalize your resources that are that can be traded for a profit internationally and use those to build social programs. And this is a way that you can make pretty s- serious reductions in poverty and human misery in your own country. And if the majority is poor then any democracy is going to basically pursue these policies because that's the logic of democracy. You're going to have policies that that benefit the majority, although people in America seem to have forgotten that idea even. But what, what the U.S. does is they crush every country that tries this. So if you actually are democratic, the U.S. will overthrow your government and then accuse you of not being a democracy as to why they had to do it. Or they'll just say that they didn't do it. But the outcome of this is uh, a world system where uh, I, I mentioned this number in my book. It's from Peter Phillips's uh, book, Giants, but it's really based on like UN statistics. Nine million people die of starvation and malnutrition around the world every year. And this number could be basically eliminated with a small tax on billionaires, not even like a drastic tax on billionaires or with uh, you know a fraction of the Pentagon budget is what Peter told me at one point. So this is uh it's like the U.S., but the U.S., instead of putting forward the money to uh, have these improvements, the U.S. actually punishes any country that attempts to fix these problems on their own. So the U.S. really bears, a, that's why I say the U.S. is world history's deadliest empire, because of the structural violence, especially the violence of oh, yeah. the U.S., not just that they don't fix in terms of killing people by starving them, etc., but the fact that they actively police the system and crush anyone who tries to fix these problems, I mean, this is horrendous.
0: Oh, yeah. Like I said, here in El- El- LNR, um, that's exactly what they did is basically they installed a coup government and then the coup government wanted to come in and back this area. And the people were like, no. And so they fought back. And this has been an eight year long war here. Um So we see a lot of people who are kind of have the same financial interests, like popping up over and over. And is the concept of the permanent war. A lot of times people think that it's like something that has happened by accident and not by design. And I think later on in your book, you kind of explain how it's a little bit more like by design. Can you kind of explain
1: the the war economy? You mean, yes. Okay. Yeah. After world war II, The economies of Europe, especially, were uh, a mess. Japan also was economically damaged. I've heard that some of their industrial capacity was left in better shape than is commonly understood. But either way, they weren't, that they they were going to need to be incorporated into this global empire that the U.S. wanted to establish. They argue in uh, policy papers, and especially in the War and Peace Studies Project, which was carried out by the State Department before the U S even enters the war that it planned for U S entry into the war. And it said the U S would likely win the war. And then that they would be in a great position of great power.
0: You mean the Soviets?
1: (laughs) Well, they, they said that they would emerge on the winning side and they, you know, they did, especially by letting the Soviets do most of the fighting for them. Um, and this was carried out by the council on foreign relations and the state department, but really, you know, the council on foreign relations was running it. it was funded by the Rockefeller a foundation. Ah, okay. So the council on foreign relations is just wall street's think tank. It was run by, uh, it was established by uh, people who wanted to copy the British system of the round table groups. And it's funded by standard oil and so on. Really. David Rockefeller was the, the main guy controlling it for m- much of the 20th century. Alan Dulles was uh, one of the main people writing the war and peace studies project. So he wrote two reports that are still secret on security and sovereignty. And this was the architecture for, you know, they they plan out things like the IMF and the UN and the World Bank, and uh, they argue about how much space they're going to need. And Henry Luce, uh, the guy that publishes Time, Life and Fortune magazine, he pitches this to the public in the essay, The American Century. And the, this is what they go for after World War Two. And they replace the progressive vice president, Henry Wallace, with a more pliable guy, Harry Truman, uh, who, who nukes. Two Japanese cities and who creates the CIA and the National Security Act, which also creates the um, not just the CIA, but the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the National Security Council. And that's the American national security state. Now, as the 1940s come to a close, the economies of Western Europe are not doing well, nor is the aerospace industry in the United States. And so the, the aerospace crisis happens first.
0: What's the aerospace crisis?
1: Well, there was a in 47 and 48, the aerospace industry was doing badly because it didn't have all these huge war contracts, wartime contracts. They made enormous profits in the war where investors were getting huge returns because the U.S. government invested a lot of money, but the profits were were private. And so they made a whole lot of money during this time period. But they were doing badly in 47 and 48. And so you had a war scare that was more or less fabricated in order to get Congress to give more money to save the aerospace industry, which also had the effect of saving Chase Manhattan Bank, which is a big Rockefeller bank, uh, because they were a big creditor for the aerospace industry. So all these industries are intertwined with finance and so on. And this this is something important to keep in mind is the interconnected nature of American capitalism and the the, the pinnacle of corporate power. So this is like the prequel, really, to uh, the, the the huge buildup, uh, which is articulated and argued for in NSC 68, which was written in 1950. And if you read that document, the the, authors, uh, the author is Paul Nitza, but it, he's really writing this at the behest of Dean Acheson, who is like one of the main sort of establishment masterminds of the U.S. empire. And it talks a lot about the dollar gap as a real problem. It depicts the Soviets in really apocalyptic terms. And it, <laughs> and it says, it, but it's weird because these guys at the time were acknowledging that, yeah, the Soviet Union is not really going to invade. And even if they get nukes, it's not really going to change the security situation because they're not going to want to invade Western Europe or take over the rest of Germany. But they realize that the danger for them is neutrality in, in Western Europe, that the Europeans might be like, well, we don't really we're, The U.S. has this productive industrialized economy and we are kind of poor because of the war and everything else. And so we're going to ju- we're going to be neutral in this Cold War, in the war between so- the Soviet Union and the U.S. And we're going to trade with Russia and we'll, tr- we'll trade with the Soviets and we'll trade with uh, the U.S. But this wasn't what the U.S. wanted. The U.S. wanted them really tied into this dollarized economy. The Bretton Woods system established the dollar as the world reserve currency uh, where extra dollars could be redeemed for gold, $35 an ounce of gold. That was the system. But the problem was the Europeans couldn't generate enough dollars because they just didn't have the economy to produce what Americans would buy. And so there was this dollar gap. And the way that they decided they needed to stop this was a massive rearmament program. They're g- you're going to build this huge war machine, and you're going to really hype up the Soviet threat, and you're going to force these countries to spend part of their GDP on, you know, NATO weapons and so on. I mean, this is around the time NATO gets formed, and uh, it was a way to. And it result, the U.S. in order to to be able to send these dollars out, the U.S. had to run deficits, and it caused a gold drain in the U.S. Every, every that accumulated. But that the people that were planning this didn't really care because they're not actually that patriotic when it comes down to it. They are more interested in they, they believe that the interests of corporate America are the interests of the United States. And so they actually damaged the U.S. gold position in order to uh, hammer in this new uh, economic system with the U.S. basically as the center of gravity in between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And then money and trade, capital and trade flows going across the Pacific and across the Atlantic with the U.S. as the center and this war economy being the engine for it. And that this was the only way that they could come up with to uh, dot- to create this capitalist system that they wanted to create and to make sure that they couldn't trade with the East. And this is, when you think about it today, this is what they're trying to reestablish, I believe, that they are just trying to reestablish this system where nobody's going to trade with Russia anymore
0: fired um, yes. um like it, it seems like what they've gotten is europe to kind of commit suicide yes so it's like the rest of the world has is still trading with russia but europe has committed suicide and so they were successful in creating a client state in europe so i'd kind of like to talk a little bit about watergate because you give a completely new look on everything that happened in the watergate or what we thought we knew
1: so let's start do you have time for that or? Yeah, I can, I can try to give you a, a, a sketch of it here.
0: Okay. Go for it.
1: Well, I, there are people before who have written critical accounts of Watergate. Uh, one of the greatest ones is Jim Hogan's 19, I think it's a 1984 book called secret agenda, uh, Watergate deep throat in the CIA, I think is the subtitle. And he was an editor for Harper's magazine. And he just wrote about this amazing stuff that he had Found through uh by getting access being the first guy to get access to the fbi files and then he interviewed a whole lot of people i mean it's astounding the, the amount of work he put into that peter Dell scott also wrote some critical accounts of watergate as well and this happened to peter because as he, he was already in 1972 doing research on the kennedy assassination and one of the figures that he had been looking at was a guy named frank fiorini or frank sturgis and he was studying his activities working with uh the mob, and with Cuban uh, right-wing Cubans, and then other CIA operations, and right after the Kennedy assassination, this guy was involved in a disinformation effort to try to link Oswald to communist Cuba. Okay, so <laughs> this was, and so Peter, this guy was already on Peter's radar, and then he gets arrested in the Watergate, and Peter says, "What is this? This there's some, there's some kind of connection here." Okay, that was just his his first instinct, and he wrote this great article in Ramparts in I think nineteen seventy three called like the Dallas Watergate connection or something like that. Uh, Maybe the longest cover up, uh, the Dallas Watergate connection, something something like that. But it's a great article at the time that it was written. I mean, you're like you can't believe it was written in nineteen seventy three, but it dealt with all the connections, some of the connections between Dallas and Watergate that you had the mafia involved in both cases. You had the the security services,
0: the gusanos.
1: The CIA, uh, yeah, and all of these people tied together in a in a strange milieu, and so there were these other works that were written about it. But I took this uh, even further than uh, I think Peter had and other people because I basically built on a lot of Peter's work. And what I find is that Nixon was the president during this extremely tumultuous time period in the United States. Bre- the Bretton Woods system was collapsing. Uh, They closed the gold window basically because of Vietnam War spending. Okay, JFK had tried to get the gold situation in the U.S. under control. And for the first time uh, in years, right before he's assassinated, the U.S. actually has a gold surplus. Okay, Mm. And he actually told people in 1961, Max Taylor and other people, uh, one of the reasons that they couldn't put troops in Vietnam because the military wanted ground troops in Vietnam in 1961. Kennedy said, no, it'll wreck the balance of payments. Uh, position of the United States. So that was one of the reasons that he opposed it. And then, of course, Johnson reverses that. And then by 1968, the U.S. has to essentially end the Bretton Woods system and say, we're not going to give you gold anymore because uh, we've spent too much on the war. You guys have too much dollars out in the world. And if we keep giving you gold for them, like we promised, it'll bankrupt us. So we're not going to do that anymore. And they needed to reorganize how this was going to be set up in the United States, the new sort of system. And they had these negotiations, you know, where they pretended this is what I think happened. I mean, it seems pretty clear now. The U.S. was pretending to go forward with these negotiations about a new system that would involve the special drawing rights uh, of the IMF as a form of international currency. And what what happens, though, is the oil crisis before they can get this worked out. And it later emerges that the oil crisis was orchestrated by the U.S. I mean, I think that I, I lay it out here pretty in a straightforward way. I write even more about it in this article for uh, that was a review of Adam Curtis's films but basically the US uses the the war and these other countries and uh, to affect a huge price increase the Saudi uh, oil minister at the time said that he talked to the Shah of Iran around the same time period and the Shah says why are you guys even worried about this price increase Henry Kissinger wants it he he told us he wants the price increase And the reason that you get this oil shock in the 70s was to create a need for dollars because people would have to buy, have dollars to buy oil. And so there were all these dollars piling up in other countries, central banks, and they were unhappy about this because the U.S. was essentially getting to like, you know, print money and spend it for free. And uh, they wanted gold for it, but they're trying to figure out what to do to fix the system to make it more fair. And then the oil crisis happens and they have to basically deplete their holdings in order to to buy oil because the people that had racked up dollars were also big oil consumers and all the oil producing nations were american puppets and basically in the yom kippur war you the belligerents are like you know the uh the arabs and israelis but these are all u.s puppets you have u.s puppets in saudi arabia israel is of course a u.s client state egypt at this point uh under sadat was sadat was essentially a cia asset um, you have Suharto in Indonesia was a huge oil producer and their oil finally just comes online. This this amazing oil well that they would kept secret for like over 30 years in West Papua comes online right at this time period. And it uh, allows all of this money to be because the oil prices quadruple. It's huge money in the accounts of these of the oil companies, but also the states, the big oil producers. And then they recycle that money back into the U.S., financial system. And Nixon was presiding over this at this time. So this is a time of, a, of amazing transformation in the United States. And what eventually happens is the US is able to stabilize this system in such a way that it's got this Rumpelstiltskin power to, to print dollars as much as it wants. And they're only backed by treasury bills. People have to have the dollars to buy oil because they make the US makes deals with the Saudis that they'll only sell their oil in dollars.
0: Well, it's of funny this year I was reading one of the CFR reports and um, MBS actually like ignored Biden's phone call and I can the CFR Council of Foreign Relations was saying that oh MBS refused to play Saudi Arabia's traditional role in um, stabilizing the oil prices as per US request as in like he just kind of refused like no I'm not pumping like as you requested to me it it's like oh so that's what they've been doing for all these past 40 50 years now <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it's unraveling. It's unraveling now, and the U.S. doesn't have the power, it seems, to tell them what to do. And they've just struck deals to sell. They've been There's been uh, reporting on the Saudis selling their oil in Chinese yuan. So this is going to be a big change. This is a, a big change from what the U.S. has relied upon for all these years. And uh, 2014 was the last time the U.S. actually said to the Saudis, hey, crash the oil prices. And they did. But that was under the old leadership. And shortly afterwards, MBS takes over. And he has an independent streak. Uh, he doesn't seem like a good guy by any stretch, but he is realizing that the it doesn't it's not in the national interest in his own personal narrow oligarchic interests to be so aligned with the United States. And so this has been this is a sign of the U.S. empire crumbling. The other step that te- that happens during this time period is that the U.S. jacks up interest rates to a high degree. This happens a little later in the seventies. But this was a way to bring the economy back into alignment and really further cement the U.S. power over the world. A lot of those petrodollars were given to Western banks after the oil crisis, and then they are encouraged to loan these out to third world countries. And so the third world countries need these to like help to compensate for an economic downturn and to pay for oil and such, which is more expensive because of the oil crisis. And so it makes sense for them to take out these loans, but... When the interest rates go way up, it becomes much more difficult and you get the debt crisis. So the, that later is used to really stick it to all of these global South countries. Now, getting back to Nixon, Nixon didn't really want to pursue those Volcker policies the, ah! okay, because he'd been asked to do it. He'd been asked to put him in to, as Treasury Secretary uh, and didn't he, he wasn't interested in doing it, as I understand it. This, the report was circulating with basically the outlines of this plan because Volcker worked for Kissinger, but Nixon would not take this sort of step. Additionally, Nixon uh, starts to blame these other countries like Japan and, and Germany uh, and Britain, who have especially, but I think Germany and Japan are the big ones, and they have dollar surpluses, and Nixon is starting to want to pursue protectionism instead uh, an industrial policy. But the Rockefellers create the Trilateral Commission around this same time period to deal with this stuff, and they don't want that. They want free trade and what we think of as neoliberalism. And what Nixon was trying to do was really look out for the U.S. national interest and the U.S. industrialists and, and practice some sort of protection. But that would have, according to the Rockefeller reading of things, led to the fragmentation of the capitalist system. And so to me, I would guess, even though there were military, there were CIA people and militarists who didn't like detente and other things that Nixon was doing, that the decisive actors in this were probably the Rockefeller types, you know, your corporate America, Wall Street, uh, high finance, and oil, and so on. These people that wanted to create this new international system with the dollar at the center of it, and these other countries brought in no free, no uh, industrial protectionism for the United States. Uh, it would be more this neoliberal free trade idea. And it would really be devastating to American workers. And it would be problematic for a few years as they worked all this this out. You'd have some failed presidencies. Uh, Nixon didn't want that. He didn't want to be a failed president. He wanted to have price controls and other uh, guaranteed minimum income. He actually boosted Social Security. He wanted to create a, a medical system that would have covered everyone, if you can believe that. Uh, he actually had different plans.
0: Yes, I believe that because he created the EPA. Um Like I said, I've done a little bit research and I've noticed that Nixon's been every president after Nixon's been less progressive than him.
1: (laughs) That's which is crazy because he was a maniac and he killed many people. Uh, I'm not going to put a halo on him. And yet it's scary that that as bad as he was, we're not you couldn't get anybody like that now. I mean, this is this really speaks to how twisted it is now.
0: Okay, I have a last question right now. Yeah, the U.S. is not like being able to do what it. it, They really, they're like I read their plan, and um, it's they've really like screwed the pooch here. So, what is the limit to the reaction that they will unleash on the world?
1: Well, this this is what everyone is waiting to see, myself included. I think that the U.S. has miscalculated in many areas, and they have kind of doubled down. And on failed strategies, it's really a textbook case of, uh, you know, imperial unraveling. I mean, no every empire falls, and uh, typically the steps that they take to try to reverse it only accelerate it. Uh, I mean, sometimes you can stabilize a system. The U.S. did stabilize this in ni- the 70s, uh, as I was just discussing. But this time around, you know, we are entering a situation that could be kind of similar to the 1970s. but this time around, the U.S. just does not have these Trump cards that it did before. Uh, when all of, when the system was in crisis in the nineteen in the late sixties and nineteen seventies because of Vietnam War spending and, and so on, the U.S. had total top down control over oil, the big oil producers in the world, and they also had. You know, the, one of the consequences of getting rid of Bretton Woods is that gold is, is way, way, way more valuable. So it went from thirty five dollars an ounce to whatever it is today, like seventeen hundred dollars an ounce. And the U.S. had a secret gold stash in West Papua that hadn't even been mined. World history's biggest gold mine uh, that came on, you know, started to be mined in the 1970s and so on. And so these forces like they created this system where the dollar is untethered from gold. So the U.S. Can, and Wall Street can print as many dollars as they want and run def- budget deficits, especially for military forever. But also the price of gold goes way up and they have uh, enormous gold holdings. We don't even really know how much they've probably stolen out of the Freeport mine in West Papua. So these guys are there. They're, they might be really wealthy themselves, but the U.S. system itself, the U.S. control over the, the the energy producing countries in the world, the ability to say, oh, don't trade in other currencies. The US just doesn't have that now. And uh, they're not able to deliver the goods for Europe anymore in terms of like offering good economic conditions. So it, it seems like there's catastrophe on every front for the US. I can't predict when and how precisely This is going to change. But I I have to guess that the U.S. is not going to be able to pull a rabbit out of its hat and somehow reverse things here unless they have some strategic gambit uh, in the cards that I just don't foresee. And I mean, they have all the money in the world to hire people to think of these things. And I'm just one guy. So they have some information I might not be privy to. But based on what I can tell and what I lay out in the book, I don't think the U.S. can repeat that. And so we are likely headed towards the creation of a new multipolar system. And at that point, perhaps there'll be a need to work things out more according to international law, if only because that's something that you could get the big powers to agree on by and large. And so this hopefully be a good change if they don't blow up the world first.
0: That's what I'm afraid of, actually. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's there's, it's a risk. It's a risk because they have a lot to the people don't realize how much the U.S. has to lose the U.S. oligarchy because they at this point in time, they are the richest, most powerful people in the world. They rule the world and that could be slipping away from them. And so they might take risks. They might feel that these risks are worth taking. I do not am outraged by it, by the fact that we are in this position at all, because we're being all of our lives are placed at risk uh, in order to allow this avaricious murderous oligarchy to attempt to hold on to its uh, hegemony over, over mankind. And, uh, and it sucks.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I'm really worried about that part where they're just, yeah, because right at the end of every empire is when they get the most reactionary, the most impulsive, like the most likely to like nuke everyone kind of stage. So that's what I'm really worried about actually.
1: Yeah. I know. And there's never been a situation there. This is a unprecedented situation in human history. There's never been, there've been empires, but no empire ever had the option of blowing up the world uh, to try to hold on to its power. So what is going to happen here? Uh, And it's, uh, we're all waiting to see, but uh, I hope that this things can calm down and that we can, uh, as long as you don't blow up the world, then you have a chance to fix problems. That's the way I see it. And so, this is what we got to keep in mind.
0: That's a very optimistic way <laughs> of seeing the world. Well, thank you so much. And um, where can people find you?
1: Uh, the, uh, the main way that I'm putting out content now is uh, through the American Exception podcast on Patreon. We have a large, long series going on about my book. At present, we're already up to like, we've recorded 19 episodes. And it sort of also brings in a whole lot of history. Uh, we're doing that with Ben Norton. And uh, the book is American Exception: Empire in the Deep State. The podcast is also American Exception, and that's on Patreon. The book you can get wherever you buy books. Uh, you can write a review at Amazon. Uh, I don't. I think people probably want to buy it somewhere else because you don't really want to support Bezos, <laughs> etc. But th- if you write a review on Amazon, that that is helpful for me. And uh, there's also AmericanException.com, the website where we have a few articles posted. We're going to try to do more there. Uh, And uh, so people can follow my work that way. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, American exception is my uh, handle. And then it's like underscore Aaron underscore good, something like that. You just Google Aaron good Twitter. You should probably find it.
0: Well, thank you so much. And hope to have you back on the podcast. Not too far in the future.
1: Hey, thank you. And I hope you stay safe out there and uh, that you, uh, that, that everything goes well for you. So thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you so much. And have a rest of the great rest of the day. Yeah, you
1: too. You too. Bye-bye.
0: Good night. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.